This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, October 3rd, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. What makes whistleblowers call attention to wrongdoing in government and the corporate world? It's probably not fame. People with something to lose in the wake of whistleblowing often work to denigrate and destroy the careers of people who are trying to raise the alarm. Author Tom Muller is author of Crisis of Conscience, Whistleblowing in an Age of Fraud. We spoke this week. You document a bunch of different... Um, whistleblowers, and as you were going through chronicling uh, what these people did and why and how they did it, did any kind of uh, taxonomy emerge of who these kinds of people are? Yes. Um, quite often, they portray themselves as rules-based people. They'll say, you know, I'm a rules kind of girl, or I'm a kind of a black and white individual. Um, they're Typically, their job has an ethics component to it and sometimes a very serious one, like a nuclear safety engineer who is sworn uh, to protect the public good. Um, they may not be the, the the life of the party, the go-along-to-get-along sort of person. Um, they may be a little prickly, a little bit uh, of an eagle scout, but that actually serves the purpose very well because they don't tend to get sucked up into the mission, into the team or to obey, um, you know, an illegitimate authority. They're independent. Um, and at the end of the day, they almost always said the same thing to me. Uh, and that was, I had to do what I did, no matter how bad the retaliation was going to be. I had to look at myself in the mirror um, every morning. Um, if I didn't do something, I would become part of the problem. And so uh, anytime anybody decides to be a whistleblower, they do have to take that sort of take their sort of moral credibility with themselves, um, but also they have to look at the people in their lives, uh, their spouses, their children, uh, their friends. Uh, some of their friends are often colleagues. Uh, are, there, are there typical problems that emerge uh, there? Yes, it's a very challenging emotionally um, and, and from a relationship point of view. It's a very challenging um, and scary undertaking uh, to become a whistleblower. Uh, constantly, marriages are put under extreme stress. Um, uh, you know, financials, the financial situation deteriorates. People lose their house. Their health collapses, mental and physical. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a full um, bag of of great stresses on a on a person. And so, it is important that they work out um, with their close. Uh, family, um, with their friends and colleagues to the extent that they can. Um, sometimes they're limited in who they can talk with. But to work out a support system, to work out um, a consensus um, that allows them to stay the course, because uh, unfortunately, many whistleblowers have uh, very, very good facts, but they don't have the stamina or the support and they fall along the wayside. And what does that mean? What does that look like when somebody falls along the wayside? They're they're punished and the story never comes out or it comes out and they're just destroyed by it? Uh, yes. Well, falling along the wayside, I think of as, as the ultimate failure of whistleblowing, which is not to be punished, but that their word does not get out, um, that the conduct that they're trying to report does not stop. That, for the whistleblower, is the ultimate fear. Um and certainly there are times when a whistleblower wins in, in terms of seeing some justice done in court, but loses in terms of having a terrible uh, life-altering experience. Uh, 
almost invariably, I mean, this is for me, um, perhaps a, an indictment of our society, almost invariably, even if they win, even if they're vindicated, and even if it's shown that they've saved a thousand lives, that person will never work again in their chosen field. They are blackballed forever. And that tells you something not very appealing about, I think, our dual standard vis-a-vis um, -vis whistleblowers. We're, we're glad for the information they provide. We're grateful, perhaps. We may even cheer them in the in the theater. But then we turn around and, and forget that these real people have to go on with their lives and quite often without a livelihood. All right. Tell me about Alan Jones. Alan Jones is one of my personal heroes. Uh, he is a remarkable individual. He, he's a, a, a tough guy with a with a heart as big as Texas. Um, and he found a, um, a very sinister um, fraud being perpetrated on a series of states, including his native Pennsylvania, by a, a group of big pharma um, or corporations. And he, at enormous um, risk and loss to himself, pushed this knowledge again and again and again until he finally found someone in the state of Texas, the uh, attorney general's office in Texas, who would listen. And they then kicked all the tires on his case that he was, the, the allegations that he was making, and found they were absolutely accurate. And together with the state of Texas, Alan Jones brought suit against Johnson Johnson and Janssen, their subsidiary, and won a sizable settlement. And then that, in turn, helped to, um, to, to make a success of the federal government's $2.2 billion settlement against Johnson Johnson. So from a, from a, um, from a success standpoint, his whistleblowing was extraordinarily successful. Uh, you know, from a, from a life changing and a life harm um, perspective, I think Alan is 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 back now. He's strong again, but he went through some harrowing harrowing times, which he refers to as the dark times. And um, he he once said, "It's it's tough to trust people again after what the world did to me." When a whistleblower has discovered some substantial wrongdoing, either in the corporate world or in the government or both, in, as in the case of uh, Alan Jones, um, finding those people that you trust uh, has to be an enormous challenge uh, and finding people who are in a position to do the right thing. It has to be an enormous challenge. An enormous challenge to convince them, A, that you know this really uh, extraordinary fraud scheme um, with vast repercussions and enormous um, monetary value is true. And then, as you say, to find someone who can actually act on it and do something about it. So in other words, to find the right law and the right um, legal system and the right lawyer, um, th that's, a, that's a team that is difficult to put together. And there has to be a clarity of purpose and a determination too in many cases and uh, um, Alan Jones embodies all of those things. He absolutely was not going to give up until this this misconduct stopped. He needed to see those the harm being done to people stop. And he um, really you know, without any resources, um, having lost his house, um, um, marital problems, all kinds of difficult things to fight through. He kept on fighting until he brought it to light. Um, I hate to think, though, that you know my work is has a sampling bias. I only hear about the cases I could hear about. I know that there are a lot of other cases out there where someone tried and and went 
you know, played for three quarters, but fell down before the fourth quarter. And I just never heard about him. And nobody wants to be that guy if they're aware of, of wrongdoing and uh, want to report on it. Are there, um, is there a checklist or some sort of best practices that uh, whistleblowers ought to uh, follow? Yes, uh, th there certainly is in the first one and second and perhaps the third one as well is get a good lawyer. That's step one, two, and three. If you have an excellent lawyer um, who's versed in the, the particular area of whistleblowing that you um, are involved with, and it's public and private, but it's also you know many, many different, it's a maze, and you need an expert to, to help you lead to help lead you through that maze. Then uh, again, the the that expert will will coach you on checking to see if your spouse, your family, your immediate um, support system is good with this. Uh, will you survive this? Because again, it's winning a case means not only having good facts, but being still standing um, when when the case is over. And unfortunately, organizations are pretty good at systematic destruction. Um, of of whistleblowers, it's it's a it's a tried and true method of making the message go away by killing the messenger. For a lot of these whistleblowers, of course, they have mortgages, they have spouses, they have children. Um, does uh, the, your level of wealth have anything to do with how successful you're going to be as a whistleblower? Do you have any idea about that? That's a very good question. Uh, you know, uh, be, starting off destitute would not be a good start. But in my experience, and again, you know, there may be sampling error in, in the in the stories I chose or gravitated to naturally. But the the majority of people who blew the whistle that I have profiled came from a fairly low income a background. Um, and, and several of them said, you know, I wasn't scared of them taking away my stuff because I grew up with no stuff, you know, um, and, and very few very wealthy people um, that I'm aware of ever blew the whistle. Um, very few CEOs, very few high officials. I mean, that's why Daniel Ellsberg stands out so remarkably um, is that he, you know, he had a illustrious career. He was part of the inner circle. Quite often, when you're part of the inner circle, the power of that belonging is so strong that your individual conscience is is, is grayed out. So, I, it, to a certain extent, you have to be, even as a technical insider, you have to be emotionally somewhat of an outsider um, in order to blow the whistle effectively. Uh, the whistleblower in this Ukraine call gate, Gazi, whatever you want to call it, um, uh, how do you evaluate uh, how this person proceeded and how that person has been treated thus far uh, in the public? Well, um, as far as we can determine uh, and as far as um, the, the DNI um, acting director McGuire and the um, inspector general um, have stated on the record, um, they followed the law every step of the way and they made their disclosures in good faith. Um, there is a channel for making whistleblower disclosures, and they followed it. Um, now, you know, uh, it's not just the word of the whistleblower we're taking here. It, we have to remember that the inspector general also vetted this whistleblowing complaint. Uh, the vast majority of complaints that are vetted by the inspector generals, uh, inspectors general, are are turned down, are not uh, certified as credible or urgent. This was, after an extended um, process, 
during which I'm sure the inspector general reviewed documents, questioned witnesses. The inspector general pronounced this credible and urgent. So it has passed a significant hurdle of fact-checking, uh, of verification. And um, given, you know, we know that this person has followed, uh, uh, gone through channels. Naturally, the easiest thing to do with a um, with with a with a complaint that has already, in large part or in significant part, been corroborated by the White House sources themselves, um, the most effective way of making this message go away is again to silence or denigrate or destroy the messenger. And I think that's the strategy right now on the Republican side. Tom Muller is author of Crisis of Conscience, Whistleblowing in an Age of Fraud. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>